Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. This is episode 405. Whoever said I didn't have an attention span? This is an amazing conversation that I am so excited to share with you. It's with Dr. Will Balsowitz, who is the author of the brand new book that just came out today on Amazon and everywhere else, Fiber Fueled. And I want to get this out of the way right now. Go buy a copy of Fiber Fueled. Um, it presents the eat more plants argument in a way that will get through to omnivores, to carnivores, to all manner of people who don't right now embrace a plant based or vegetarian or vegan message. It's that good. It I, listen, I, I get asked to read dozens of books because of the podcast by plant based doctors and dietitians and pharmacists and re researchers and I'm not that excited to read them. You can imagine like, you know, they're they're largely the same message with the same research behind it, a slightly different spin. But this book, Fiber Fueled, is completely different. It's the most cutting edge research stuff that didn't even exist when the China study was published or even when when Forks Over Knives came out. Um, and this is information about the interaction of our gut microbiome with literally every other system in our bodies and how the food we eat determines the literal makeup. What is in that gut microbiome? Um, so our conversation went long. It's an hour and 20 minutes, so I'm not going to uh, belabor it here. I'll just give you a couple of the important announcements, and then we'll get right to it. First of all, um, because of the pandemic, I have changed my pricing structure for the full year of laser coaching. If you're interested in getting coached by me and getting supported and changing your health habits, gosh, now more than ever, being healthy is important. It's not just a ticking time bomb for heart disease in 10 or 20 years or amputations due to diabetes or blindness in five or 10 or 15 years. This is COVID-19. This is taking people out with with compromised health, compromised immune system, uh, too much inflammation in their bodies right now. So if the urgency of the situation has inspired you to do something positive and you'd like some help with the behaviors, check it out. Plantyourself.com slash laser. I have a pay from the heart program. You can get a full year for as low as $83 a month. Second thing, if you have been thinking about becoming a health coach um, now, I think is a pretty good time for a lot of reasons. One is, you know, social distancing. Uh, it's an easy job to do over the phone or via Skype or Zoom. Um, another is, as I just said, people really need the help right now. Um, and you might, you know, be looking for a new career or, be, you know, be needing one. So for all those reasons, if you're interested, check out wellstartcoach.com. Dot com and you can sign up for an enrollment interview. Do it quickly because the class starts on this coming Monday, May 18th, 2020. Finally, if you like the work of Plant Yourself and you are fortunate enough to have uh, a, a funding source for your life and a little bit extra and you'd like to send that my way, every little bit helps right now. You can do that at plantyourself.com slash gift. Um, that's where the tip jar lives. All right, so let's get to it. This amazing conversation about an amazing book with an amazing doctor and human being. Without further ado, Dr. Will Bolsowitz, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. 
Oh my gosh, Howard, it's an honor. It's an honor to come on your show. And, you know, I'm excited and I love your, I, I hope for the people who are listening to just the audio, if you get a chance, you have to check out the visuals because Howard has a wonderful goatee and it's very, you know, man, do you have a Harley Davidson? I'm curious. Uh, <laughs> I, you look like you need one. I, I have a, uh, uh, Husqvarna selling machine. <laughs> nice. That's like me driving a minivan. Yeah. You know, you've arrived. <laughs> yeah, no, this is, um, I started growing it. We were in, uh, on vacation in South Africa and then we were in lockdown in South Africa. And I just, oh, felt, I just felt like I had to become more of a badass. And, yeah. And I lost my razor. So it, it all, it all dovetailed. So you became the American badass is, is what you're saying. Yeah, I just uh and now I'm back here and you know I'm I'm waiting for the you know the roving the roving gangs of uh the militia of, the militias with the with the Confederate flags and the AK47 so I figured yeah. a little facial hair could maybe uh the, the chance the chances of that happening are much higher today than they were 3 months ago that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I I see uh I see patterns anyway. So before yeah. we, before we talk about your book I got to ask you you look fantastic. You looked good when we podcasted, I think, a year or two ago. But like, are you like seventeen now? Do you do they call you Doogie? Like you look, you look so radiantly healthy. Oh man, we're just we're just buttering each other up here on, on the Plant Yourself podcast. <laughs> um, you know, I feel great. I mean, I feel great. I'm turning forty in like two months. And I feel, you know, and I wrote about this in the introduction of the book. I feel younger today than I did at 30. Mm -hmm. And I credit a plant-based diet. And, you know, I mean, frankly, truly, Howard, I, 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 I practice what I preach. And I'm doubling down here during the COVID-19 crisis. I'm doubling down on the concepts in my own book because I really actually think that that's the way that you can protect yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm just getting bringing my notes up because I took... I took lots of notes um, to, to 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 ask you about. Um, so what I what I want to say about the book is, like I will. This is the book that I will be recommending to everyone who wants to get started. And it's changed. And I, I read it like yesterday, like in preparation for this conversation. And it has already changed my approach to helping people get healthier. So like I'm. I mean, I can't tell you how many wonderful books I've read that all say essentially the same thing from a different perspective. So from the perspective of heart or cancer or here's some recipes. But basically, like you start, you, you I get tired of reading books about plant-based health, right? Mm. And so I kind of was worried that this was going to be another one and we were just going to, and it was totally different. And so I'm really excited to... Uh, to, to get into that um, with you, yeah. So because I'm because I'm, I'm I'm honestly curious what you, what what you mean like what parts stood out as different to you. I mean I guess we could talk about it through this conversation if you want, but yeah, well, that gets me excited. <laughs> well, so the 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 first thing is you cut through a lot of confusion. There is so much you know. There's Everybody in the plant-based world, all the doctors have sort of their different protocols. So you've got, you know, McDougal, Furman, Esselstyn, Campbell, um, Barnard, and all everyone's saying slightly different things. And people, you know, get into camps 
And so one thing that you said is like, here's the golden rule of eating. And it's not, you know, 16 servings of, of, of steamed kale a day. And it's not, um, tons and tons of starches. And it's not, it's a, it's a deep, more fundamental prescription. Maybe, maybe mm-hmm. let's start there. So tell, tell us what the golden rule is. Well, you know, Howard, um, from my perspective, I have grown so tired and, 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 and frankly, sympathetic towards the people who um, are fed these fad diets, these fad diets where for the last 20 years, what we've been told is that the solution is restriction. I mean, there are people who, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, they are, they are self-titled gut health experts, you know, hmm. and they're... They're never gastroenterologists. They're never formally trained. And they will say that the way to optimize your gut is if the food causes gas, bloating, or any sort of discomfort, then it must be inflammatory and you have to get rid of it. And I've grown so tired of this because, you know, we are driving people insane. We are driving people insane with our laundry lists of forbidden foods. (laughs) With our, our lists of, you know, food monsters or ingredients that kill people where, you know, we're freaking everyone out over, over like, can I eat this? Can I not eat this? Is this going to kill me? Um, the, you know, the macros, the weighing the food, the calorie counting, it is getting absolutely ridiculous and it's so unneeded. And the idea of restriction is a flawed idea because science is showing that that actually causes damage to the microbiome. The way that it works is this. Your gut thrives on fiber. Fiber is found in plants. But fiber is not some generic entity. Fiber is biochemically unique. Whatever plant you pick up and hold in your hand, that plant has unique types of fiber. If it's black beans, there are certain types of fiber within the black bean. And those unique types of fiber feed specific bacteria that live in your microbiome. They are picky eaters. They don't all like the same food. Your microbes are picky. They like specific types of fiber from specific types of plants. So the point is this. We want our gut to be thriving and teeming with as much diversity as possible. And in order to optimize the diversity within our microbiome, we need diversity of fiber which we inherently get when we eat a diet that has a diversity of plants. And it's not just, hey, uh, you know, Dr. B, that's a cool idea. I like that. For me, I wouldn't be sitting here and like basing my entire book on this one concept just based upon a cool idea. That's, that's, that's hogwash. I need to have real science. I'm a scientist just like you. And so when we look at the largest study to date to answer the question, What is it about our diet and lifestyle that predicts the healthiest gut possible? When the American Gut Project tried to answer this question, what they revealed was the clear-cut number one predictor of a healthy gut microbiome is the diversity of plants in your diet. So the point is this. throw Throw out the forbidden foods. Throw out the macros and the calorie counting and the weighing your food. And let's get back to one rule. That's it, one rule. Diversity of plants. Let's maximize, let's have abundance, 
Let's get as much variety. And when it's real food, your body thrives when you're eating real fruits, vegetables, whole grain seeds, nuts, and legumes. All right. So what I, what I loved was the, the metaphor of, so the gut is a muscle. Yeah. Right. And so like, cause I mean, this was like the mind blower to me that, oh, like I always felt like, well, if you have a sensitivity to that, then you shouldn't, you shouldn't eat it. You know, right. it's, it's like that joke. Like, does it hurt when you get, you know, when I, when you, I hit you on the head? Is it good? Try not to get hit on the head. But, <laughs> but you say it's more like, like you injure your knee and you put it in a cast or, and then because it's injured, you never move it again or, you know, right. And so then, so like that explained to me why so many people have sensitivities to foods. It's because like, as you said, like we, we have what, 17 enzymes to digest starch, but, and so we outsource most of our digestion to the microbiome. And so right. if we, if we fired them all, if we've laid them all off, because they didn't have enough work because we weren't eating those foods and we bring them back in, then all, then we feel bad and we assume that we, sh that, that that's proof that we shouldn't be eating them. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, it's kind of like, so, so just to unpack the analogy a little bit, the idea is that your gut is a muscle and, and what that means is it can be trained. So if it's weak, we can make it stronger. And a person who has a damaged gut, that's like them trying to rehab that muscle. So when you're rehabbing something, you're not, you're not going to the gym and lifting, you know, 300 pounds when you're in the rehab process. When in the rehab process, you're going to the gym and you're grabbing 2.5 pounds. <laughs> and maybe next week you get to five if things go well, or maybe you stay at 2.5. But the, but the key is that people are not stuck or locked in with digestive disorders or food sensitivities for the rest of their life. They can get it back. Your gut adapts to the diet that you present to it. What that means is that if you cut beans out of your diet entirely, why would your gut be good at processing beans? So it gets weaker and weaker and weaker and worse at processing beans. And then one day you, you get tired of the paleo diet. And you decide that you want to reintroduce the beans. And I'm, I'm just going to tell you right now, you're going to struggle in the beginning. And that's effectively, like you said, um, the, that is effectively the equivalent of not walking for three months and then deciding one day you want to stand up and start walking. And it's not going to be that easy, you know, and it, your, your gut is going to adapt to whatever you present to it. And I kind of think of it like this too. Let me extend the analogy even further, Howard. And I didn't actually put this into the book, but I, I think that it's relevant. I, I played sports when I was in high school and in the fall it was soccer and in the winter it was basketball. And I would be in great shape for soccer season. <laughs> and then I would transition to basketball and I would feel like the wind got knocked out of me oh, for about two weeks. God, five, five on five full court is killer. I don't care what kind of shape you're in. Yeah. You're using different muscles and you use, and it's a different game. You know, soccer is about long runs where you sustain and then you get to walk around a little bit. Basketball is about sp like spurts. Like you go, stop, go, stop, go, stop. Yeah. And so, and so I remember, different. I, I remember how miserable I felt when like the ball went in. Like, yeah. oh, <laughs> we're on, we're on off. We're, you know, we've got the ball. Someone makes the shot and I'm like, damn it. <laughs> so, but you know, I, I remember it would take me a couple of weeks to adapt to basketball because you're using different muscles and the same. So 
it's conceptually the same thing. When you exercise, you build up endurance and strength for the specific stuff that you've been doing. And just because you build up endurance and strength doesn't mean that you can just switch over and do something radically different immediately. You need to start to adapt when you start to introduce something new. And so that's true with our diet too. If we start to change our diet, we need to be prepared to adapt our diet and ease our body into it. Right. And and so like, so the, the first mind blowing thing was we can learn how to eat foods that we, that have been bothering us. The second was we should like this, like, as you said, because of this diversity, there's a, you know, the more diverse our plant-based diet, the more diverse our microbiome and the more protective it is. 100%. So, you know, your, your, your gut is an ecosystem. Now that sounds weird to say that because it's like, in, you know, to the people listening at home, you're like, gosh, it's like inside of me right now, right? Your gut is an ecosystem to the same degree as the Amazon rainforest. If you go into the Amazon rainforest and like, I mean, I'll be, I'll be honest. Like I don't, I don't like snakes. They, they terrify me. <laughs> um, I had a bad snake incident when I was like three, I was, I was going to the bathroom in a stream with, with my dad. I was like, we were outside and I was going to the bathroom and a snake came after me. Ooh. And then I started having nightmares. Yeah. I was three years old. So anyway, I don't like snakes. I don't like mosquitoes. But if you go into the Amazon rainforest and you get rid of all the snakes and the mosquitoes, you're going to leave a hole in the ecosystem that you probably are not going to be able to fill in. We need the diversity within the ecosystem. And the same rule that's true for the Amazon rainforest is true for your gut, too. You want as many different species as possible because each species plays a role in supporting your bodily function. You want them all on board. And that's where having a wide variety of diversity of plants helps to su su support and sustain all of them. All right. So you begin the book by by just introducing the microbiome. And you and I had already had a conversation about gut health and microbiome. But I learned a lot uh, from from the book that I did not know or maybe I'd forgotten. Um, so I, I have some notes here that I want you to talk about. So one one of the notes I wrote and I, and I did this on my phone on a little app. So. I, I didn't I didn't make them very loquacious. Diaper studies predict predict asthma. <laughs> it is insane. OK, so so just, to, uh, you know, unpack this for the people who have never heard one of my podcasts before and have not listened to our first one. I mean, by all means, please feel free to go back and listen to the first one. But mm. and you also uh, I saw you also did one with Rip for. Uh, I did. Yeah. And it just came out. I, it yeah. I, have, I, out. I didn't get a chance to listen to it, but he, you know, he's a fantastic conversationalist. So I'm sure that one's worthwhile too. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the fascinating thing about our gut microbiome is that there are these bacteria that cover us from the top of our head to the tip of our toes, but they're concentrated within our colon, which is the large intestine. We have literally 38 trillion microbes living inside of our colon. That is a hundred times the number of stars in the sky. And, and that's inside of each one of us. And so, and they live in there in harmony and balance and they, and they play a role in human health in a very powerful way. They are more than just digestion. They are connected to our immune system. 70% of our immune system lives in the gut. They're connected to our mood. 90% of serotonin, the happy hormone is produced in the gut connected to our metabolism. 
um, to our hormonal balance and even how we express our genetics. So in this particular study that you're asking me about, we're talking about the connection between our gut and our immune system. All right. We know that 70% of the immune system is in the gut. And there is literally a single layer of cells that is so thin that the human eye can't even pick it up. We can't detect it without a microscope. And on the other side of that single layer of cells are 38 trillion microbes. So they are right next to each other and they're talking to each other. And what we've discovered is that the gut microbes and our immune system are completely intertwined in a way that you can't separate them. So here's the study to demonstrate this. This is why I included this study because I wanted to demonstrate how connected our gut microbes are to our immune system. They took children who were three months old. Okay, guys, this is going to sound like science fiction. This is completely real. <laughs> this is a completely real study. They took children who were three months old and they stole their diapers. I mean, I don't know if they literally stole their diapers. They had to, I guess, get approval uh, to, <laughs> to actually do this. But Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the uh, IRB. <laughs> that would be against the, rule of the rules of the IRB. So or dumpster, they, dumpster dive. They 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 took stool specimens from three month old children, and they analyzed the stool specimen to get a, a window into the gut microbiome. And based upon this, they were able to to um, predict which children they thought would go on to develop asthma, like not like that they actually have asthma they were able to identify who are the children who are going to develop asthma years from now. Looking at the stool of a three-month-old child, they could predict who's going to develop asthma years from now. And then the question comes to mind, okay, so the gut, the, the microbes are different, okay? Basically, what I've just told you is that the microbes in a child who's going to develop asthma years, years from now, they're different. But is it the microbes? Is it the microbes that actually cause the problem? Right. So it might just be cor correlation. There's some other cause. And it all, you know, the people who have asthma also tend to have this micro microbial signature because of something else. Maybe the asthma causes the microbial signature, right? So, you know, <laughs> the question is causation. And so they took stool specimen, stool specimens from the children who they predicted would develop asthma years later. Again, they don't have asthma right now. They're predicting that they're going to do it years later. And they took these stool specimens and put it into germ-free mice. And when they did this, the germ-free mice developed asthma. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and um, like... What did, I don't know. What does mouse asthma look like? It was just like it became clear that it was harder to breathe or. Like... Well, so, you know, in medicine, we'll, we'll call this reactive airway disease. Uh -huh. And, you know, asthma is an allergic phenomenon. All right. But it behaves very similar to emphysema or, or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. OK. Where a person you, you can tell someone has asthma or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease because they are wheezing like crazy. And many times you don't even need your stethoscope. You just mm -hmm. hear them wheezing. Okay. Right. So with these mice, the same would be true is that there are certain findings that with a stethoscope within a mouse, you could basically hear. And then there's think there's, there's a test that you could do in either humans or in animals 
there's tests that you can do to test how much the airways are reacting. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that tells you that, that there's asthma present. Gotcha. So the, so the link here is with an immune system that's either like uh, hyper overreactive. So like with an allergy, right, it's, this, this is bad when it isn't. And so it's, the, you know, the allergic reaction causes the problems or also autoimmune, which is the immune system starts attacking the body, right, instead of something else. So how, how do the microbes um, interact with the immune system in those in those two scenarios? So what, what we have seen is that if you if you look at these conditions and in the book, I call them immune mediated. So but just unpack it what you just said, allergic is asthma or eczema um, or uh, allergic rhinitis, like people that have sinus issues. And this is basically the body reacting to some outside stimulus. All right, that's an allergy, like seasonal allergies. It's reacting to pollen. Whereas, as you said, autoimmune, it's attacking the body in all cases. So I started coming up with like, okay, let me name every single autoimmune condition that I can possibly come up with. Let me name all of them. And then let me start going through and finding whether or not there's a connection with the gut. And every single one that I found where they studied the gut microbiome in the setting of these allergic and autoimmune diseases, every single one, there was evidence of damage to the gut microbiome in all cases. I couldn't, I couldn't identify an allergic or autoimmune disease where when they study the gut microbiome, the gut microbiome looked normal. I, I couldn't find that. And when you say damaged, what do you mean? So the, the, the term that we would use is dysbiosis. Dysbiosis basically refers to a loss of balance of the microbes. So normally speaking, you should have a combination of, and this is, you know, I'm using layman's terms. I'm keeping it super simple, but you should have a combination of good guys and bad guys. All right. And they live in harmony and balance. And there's enough good guys outnumbering the bad guys that the bad guys really can't do anything crazy. So we call that eubiosis. That's harmony and balance. If you start taking species away, when you start losing diversity, you destabilize the environment and you create an opportunity for the bad guys to emerge and become more powerful. And you lose the harmony and balance between the good guys and the bad guys. Now the bad guys are out competing the good guys. And when you have that, this is where we, what we call dysbiosis. And because you have lost that harmony and balance that's supposed to be there, and because you have lost the species that were originally there, now you have a scenario where the gut microbiome is no longer capable of doing its job in the way that it was supposed to. And also, it is far more inflammation-provoking or inflammation-producing. Well, what is inflammation? Inflammation is activation of the immune system, which is what allergic and autoimmune disorders are. Mm. So I want to take a little detour into the current events and the the COVID-19 pandemic, because I've been hearing a lot about immune system. I was reading about the 1918 Spanish flu, where the second wave attacked people with healthy immune systems. Like, do we want a healthy immune system now? Or what what does that even mean when there's this, you know, coronavirus 
like, should, you know, should I ease off? Like I was a little bit like worried, like, should I work out really hard? Cause that'll, you know, suppress the immune system a little bit. Like what's, what's your take? Um, I, I, I actually think that the answer is, is quite clear, but it's defining it a little bit differently than perhaps you, you may see it defined, you know, in the mainstream media or on a blog from someone who doesn't truly know what they're talking about. They, they, it, those exist. <laughs> I'm shocked. They're the loudest voices out there. <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> they're the loudest voices out there and they have the most time to produce blogs. So, um, the, what we want is the immune system is our defense. It's our shield. Look in a perfect world. I don't, I don't want to be exposed to COVID-19. I mean, I'm going to be as cautious as I can. Right. Right. But there's limitations to what we can do because, I mean, truly the COVID-19 is not just going to go away. It's it's going to be a part of what is going on for the foreseeable future. And so we have to think about our body and how do we optimize our defenses? How do we basically develop our shield against this virus? And what I see that I feel is a mistake is to talk about you need a bigger immune system or you need a stronger immune system or this heightens immunity. Mm. Okay. Bigger is not necessarily better. What we want is we want precise. Mm. We want targeted. Okay. We want, we want precise. We want targeted. We want optimized. Those are the words that I would use to describe it. And I think that there's a study that I would like to share that gives you an idea of what I mean by all this. And and by the way, this is not this is not in the book because the book I was done writing it well before COVID-19 emerged. But but the 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 key for people to understand is that there is a direct line, a direct connection between your diet, your gut and your immune system. Those three things are in a chain with one another and you cannot separate them from each other. They're a part of it. So something that starts off as your food is going to affect your microbiome one way or the other. And that's going to affect your immune system one way or the other. And you can optimize your immune system with your diet. So they did a study. And by the way, I I think that you know this about me, Howard, but just for the people at home, like I am not advocating for animal based research. I'm not advocating that we do that or that we'd be casual about this, but I'm just sharing the results of the study. They, they did a, a animal study looking at a high fiber diet versus low fiber diet in the setting of respiratory viruses. And in this case, it was the influenza virus. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to see what happened. And the scientists predicted that the high fiber diet, they that the mice would actually do poorly because fiber is anti-inflammatory. So what they thought was, oh, fiber is going to put the brakes on the immune system and then you can't even fight the virus. Mm. That's what they were worried. So, so nonetheless, they've moved forward with the study. This is why you have to do the research and you can't just have ideas. So, uh, they move forward and what they found shocked them. It was the opposite. It was the polar opposite. The mice that got the high fiber diet lived longer with less symptoms and they actually measured respiratory function. They actually measured how well their lungs were doing and they had better lungs. And so the scientists were so perplexed that they went back to the drawing board and said, well, why did that happen? We need to understand. And the answer to the question is this. This is the sequence of events that was unfolding. That This is what they discovered. Fiber 
feeds the microbiome. The microbiome thrives and grows stronger when you feed it fiber, and then it takes that fiber and transforms it into short-chain fatty acids. Perhaps people have heard of butyrate, acetate, propionate. I have an entire chapter in my book about short-chain fatty acids because I'm obsessed with them because I think we should stop talking about lectins <laughs> and start talking about what actually matters in our health, which is short-chain fatty acids. And so, so they discovered that fiber was interacting with the gut microbiome and producing short-chain fatty acids. The short-chain fatty acids got into the bloodstream from the gut, left the gut, entered the blood, and traveled to the lungs. And in the lungs, the short-chain fatty acids recruited the CD8 cells. CD8 cells are the exact cell that you want to fight the virus. You are getting the right soldiers on the battlefield. Mm. But the, the rest of it that's key is we don't want more immune system. We want optimized and precise and targeted. So now we are targeted, but we also want to be precise and not overshoot and, and overdo it. Right. In other words, we don't, we don't want a carpet bomb. We don't want a carpet bomb. We don't want to just pull out all our bombs at once and just go nuclear. Okay. Because nuclear, what that means is you are overactivating the immune system. And for the people at home who haven't heard about this, most of the people who die of COVID-19, most of them, not all, but most of them are dying of respiratory failure with a condition called acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS. ARDS is not actually elicited directly by the infection. It's a consequence of the infection overactivating the immune system. So is that the that, cytokine storm? That's right. So the, the virus activates the immune system excessively, causing a cytokine storm. The cytokine storm is basically your immune system going nuclear. And when it does that, it breaks down the barriers that exist in the lungs and the lungs start to fill up with fluid. And now you can't even get oxygen into the blood because the lungs are filled up with fluid. It's like having a pneumonia, except the pneumonia involves all parts of the lungs on both sides, which is a scary thing. Mm -hmm. When that happens, the only way to keep a person alive, I mean, it's impossible to survive without a respirator in that setting. You, you need a respirator to survive. It's the only way. So now that is an overactive immune system. We don't need an overactive immune system. We don't need a bigger, stronger immune system. We need an optimized immune system. And in this study with the mice and the high fiber diet, the short chain fatty acids got the CD8 cells on the battlefield, but it kept the rest of the immune system at bay. So basically what it did is it dialed up the right part and it dialed down the rest of it, mm. which is exactly what you want to happen. <laughs> So, so a word that uh, that comes to mind for that phenomenon is intelligence. So, would you, you know, would you say that our gut microbiome? I mean, it's so weird to think of like these microscopic creatures that live for a couple of days and end up in our toilet. Are like, I guess individually, we wouldn't say, "Oh, that's you know, I want to you know have a conversation with the with that lactobacillus." But as as a, as an organism, are they intelligent? Um, they are not intelligent, but they are dynamic. They are constantly changing. And the key is that they um, are a part of human evolution from day one. There was never there was never a moment in human history where we were sterile. There was never a moment in human history where we did not have a microbiome. We always did. 
And so we rose and we fell together through millions of years. And so because of that, you know, if, if we got, if we ended up in a situation where we survived and lived long enough to procreate because of our gut microbiome, then that basically meant that those gut microbes carried forward. It's the term that we would use is co-evolution. When we talk about human evolution in isolation and we ignore the microbes, we're ignoring an important part of the entire conversation. Right. Well, I, so, I, I want to push back a little bit, though, because I, I, I'm really rooting for them to be intelligent. So let me let me make my case that, you know, so there's in, in sort of philosophy, um, there's this idea of an emergent phenomena where, you know, so basically this sack of meat and bones has consciousness and we don't know where it lives. We can't point to a, the place in the body where consciousness lives or what generates it, but it somehow has emerged and I'm, and I'm wondering whether, you know, the microbiome, like you talk about the Hasda, who have different microbiomes in the fall and the spring or the fall, in, you know, the, the fall and the winter based on the food that's available. Would you say like the, the microbiome as part of our, I guess, super organism? Mm-hmm. Um, like we think of our brains as being the intelligent part. But I can tell you as a health coach, our brains are the dumbest part of us most of the time. Like if you knock someone out, their body almost always does the, the most right, appropriate thing. Yeah. Right. When we're sleeping, you know, but when we're awake, we, we eat shit. We, you know, not literally. We, um, you know, we do all sorts of self-destructive behaviors and we think that that's us. But there's another like the microbiome also has a lot of opinions Mm-hmm. Um, and can, you know, if, if it's the right microbiome, it seems to send us in the right direction. Like you talked about, like the microbiome can actually change our, our behavior. Yeah. Well, there, there's, there's early studies that suggests that our gut microbiome controls our cravings, that our gut microbiome is, um, you know, I, it's almost sensational to talk about, but I can't, it's, <laughs> These are real studies um, that our microbiome produces pheromones, which are sex, you know, sense like the it's it's what you use to attract a partner that well, are that, gu- that would make sense from an evolutionary perspective, wouldn't it? Like, you you know, I mean, you know, like we're not dogs sniffing each other's assholes, but we, <laughs> you want to find out if somebody else is healthy, right? Well, and that's what, that was one of my favorite parts of my book is the part where I talked about why do we kiss? Why do we kiss? And the answer why is because they, they've now shown that you are exchanging microbes with the person. And basically you're checking, you're checking compatibility with the person. That's our way of doing it. That's amazing. I mean, yeah. it's, it's so much better than, you know, Tinder profiles, right? <laughs> I think, you know, to answer your question, is the microbiome, is the microbiome smart? Okay. On an individual, basis, these microbes are, there's, you know, they're single, single cellular. So it's hard for me to make a compelling argument that they are on an individual basis smart, right? Right, right. And I wasn't arguing that either. But but when you take them as a, as a conglomerate, when you take them en masse and there's 39 trillion of them, they are a, they are truly an organ. They are an organ that is dynamic, that is adaptable, that is powerful within our body and, you know, we can call it smart because it does, it works the way that it's supposed to, or you can call that highly evolved 
Hmm. Whichever you feel more comfortable with, I think we're talking about the same thing. But basically what it is, is it, it does, it reacts in the right way to, to try to promote our survival when possible. And, you know, I think to your point, by the way, Howard, I want to say that, you know, I don't know that I'm on a, necessarily a religious show here. Um, and I'm here and I'm talking about, you know, millions of years of human evolution, but I will, I, I, let me just be frank and say that the, as a doctor, you know, like I, I believe it was Nietzsche who said that, you know, basically science, um, science creates a, um, the absence of God because you don't need to believe in, in God when science has an explanation. Mm-hmm. Right. So I understand what he was saying, but that was like the 19th century. And I honestly think the more that I learn, the more that I realize how perfectly made we are. Mm. And that makes me believe in a God. Cause I'm just like, how is this so perfect? It just makes sense. The way the body works just makes sense. And it's like you said, on so many levels. Yeah. It reminds me of a story I heard a long ago. Um, there's a story about a, a, a Native American storyteller telling the story about why the leaves, lo- trees lose their leaves. And he's talking about, you know, all the, the, the little critters who needed help and creator looked down and said, Oh, well, you know, who, which of the trees wants to, um, lose their, you know, to, to protect the little ones in the winter. And so, you know, a, mel, elm and maple and oak, you know, elm and maple agree right away. And so they get the, you know, creator, um, gifts them the most beautiful fall colors. And then oak does it later. So it gets less, you know, and so then it, there's a skeptic listening and says, it says, no, no, that's not it. It's let me explain about photosynthesis and all that. And it goes through the entire scientific explanation and the storyteller is beaming and says, see how hard creator works to protect the little ones. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, and I think that, well, to, not to get philosophical, but I feel like when you and I get on these podcasts together, we always do anyway. <laughs> so I, I, I feel like humans, we, we think that we're intelligent, um, Perhaps that's because among the, you know, animals that live on this planet, we have the most intelligence, but we, it always seems like when we try to engineer stuff, we always mess it up. Hmm. You know, nature is so much smarter than we are. And I feel like this COVID-19 crisis is proof of that. I feel like the damage that we're doing to our environment is proof of that. I feel like, you know, um, our food system is proof of that. You know, we try to engineer our food system or we try to engineer our diet. Like, why don't we just go back to eating real food, fruits, <laughs> vegetables, whole grain, seeds, nuts and legumes? Like, why is this so yeah. complicated? Yeah, it reminds me of a quote by uh, my favorite comedian, Emo Phillips. who said, I think there's something like, I used to think that the brain was the most wonderful organ in my body. Then I realized who was telling me this. <laughs> there right? you go. Fair like, enough. Like the, we we think that the pro, the the, the project is command and control. Like the more we control, and that's my beef with science, really, is that it's become a, you know, science, like in the time of Darwin and even, you know, Einstein, it was, let's explore what the world is. And it feels like now it's become a, a, uh, a project of control and manipulation. And everywhere we do it, it's like you talked about the history of antibiotics. Like, there are these unintended consequences to messing with really robust, resilient, anti-fragile systems that, you know, we think, oh, great, we've got rid of the bugs. 
right? Now, mm-hmm. you know, like, we, oh, great, we got rid of the snakes and the mosquitoes. Right. And the, the absence, the vacuum is never filled by what we think it's going to be filled by. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're, I think you're completely right. Um, I, I think that we have this superiority complex. We think as humans that we are meant to dominate our environment. Um, and you know, that was one of the points of my book that I, I hope people pick up on as they read it. Cause it's sort of subtly woven in there in a couple of chapters, which is that we are part of our environment. We are not the dominant creatures. We are not the king. Of the world, you know, we are a part of this complex, um, nature and we're just a, we're just a piece of the puzzle. We're just one piece, you know, and we need to learn to accept that and have more respect for all the other pieces because you can't really have a full complete puzzle if we're destroying the other pieces. Right. And, and, you know, and I understood, I didn't understand this about the microbiome until very recently, but I've been a gardener for a long time and I understood that the project of gardening was not, you know, till the soil, grow food, take it out, and then now there's less there's less nutrients in the soil, so buy fertilizer uh, at the at the store, and now there's less diversity in the soil because the fertilizer only feeds certain bits of it, and so now I got to bring in pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides, right? Like I understood that the to, that what I was really growing was healthy soil and that everything right. else came out of that. That reminded when I'm reading your book, that reminded me like what we're trying to grow, like the goal of human of eating and of human living is our microbiome. Like you take care of that and it takes care of the rest. That's true. And it's and it's just a part of the circle of life, which is that there's, you know, this circle where the soil has its own microbiome. I mean, so let me say this. Um all life on this planet, all life, whether animate or not, either has a microbiome or is a part of a microbiome. Okay. So the plant in your garden has a microbiome. Um, one of the uh, things that I discuss in the book is like take an apple, for example. The apple tree has a microbiome. The microbiome of the apple tree is helping to basically grow that fruit from, you know, basically from seed to flower all the way to the full mature fruit. And it's adapting. And then you pluck that apple off. And studies are now showing us that that apple has more species than we do as humans. And it has a 100 million microbes. And the location of the microbes is, to me, quite fascinating. It's not where you would think they would be. People would think they'd be on the skin, on the surface. Believe it or not, they're actually predominantly in the core, which is the part that we throw out. (laughs) So, but, you know, all life either has a microbiome or is a part of a microbiome. Your soil has a microbiome. My concern with glyphosate, the herbicides, is that we're destroying the soil microbiome. When you destroy the soil microbiome, it can affect the plant's microbiome. When you affect the plant microbiome, you are affecting our food system, and that affects our microbiome and our health. And it's part of this entire circle that is all running together. And this is where, you know, I feel like we need to see, you know, how we need to start to understand that we as humans need to fit into this larger system. And the challenge, Howard, is that we have, we are putting a strain on this planet because there are 7 billion of us right now, okay? 
And if you go back to 1900, there were 2 billion. And in 1800, there were 1 billion. We have seven times the amount of people that were around in 1800. And in 2050, they expect that number to be 10 billion. What that means is that in 250 years, we have gone from 1 billion to 10 billion people on this planet. And there is a breaking point mm-hmm. where our, our, our planet is not going to be able to sustain mm-hmm. the number of people that we put on it. Right. And See, it makes you think that the virus might be, uh, the, the virus feels like it could be our planet fighting back. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because like to talk about population, being concerned about population is a dog whistle to the progressive political movement to say, oh, you're for eugenics or um, population control. And and but they're, you know, they're looking at it from a very like, you know, um, like simply geopolitical, like, is there enough land for everybody? They're not looking at it from your perspective of an of entire ecosystems well and particularly when you take so think of the strain that we put on the planet when not only do we go from 1 billion to 7 billion people but we also take those those people and we and we start consuming unprecedented amounts of meat because basically you know and we're the ones who started it in the united states we're the ones who started it. And I really think it, it sort of unfolded in the post-World War II era where basically our country is, we are now the superpower. We are the richest country in the world after World War II. And we have the ability to start to consume meat on a level that no one else ever has. And you see this in other English-speaking countries. The UK and Australia eat meat on par with the United States. But now... Our cultural bad habits are spreading to emerging countries as they become more affluent. You see this happening in China. You see this happening in Brazil. They're eating a lot more meat than they used to. So what do you do when the, on a global level, you have this demand for meat that in terms of tons of meat per year, it is more than seven times what it is in 1800. It's substantially more than that. And, Think of all the land that we need for that. Yeah. So can you can you draw the line between meat consumption and the damage to the global microbiome and to each of our microbiomes? Well, I mean, I, I, so I feel that meat consumption is causing damage to the global microbiome because of the amount of land that is required to sustain that. I mean, look, you know, on such a simple level, let's just look at the Amazon rainforest. And the fires that were occurring, you guys, this is a rainforest, all right? That is not California. Those are not brush fires. Those are not brush Mm. fires like that are spontaneously occurring. Those were man-made fires done with the intent to clear land for animal agriculture. And it's not the first year that they've had fires, but the, the issue is that they have new leadership in Brazil that basically is trying to capitalize on the global demand for meat. And they are the number one exporter of livestock in the entire world. And in order to sustain that, I mean, basically what they're doing is they're propping up China and and frankly, people in the United States. And 
in order to cap, in order to sustain that, they need more land. So they're cutting down the Amazon rainforest, and that is creating instability within the rainforest and the number of species that are going extinct as a result of that. Uh-huh. So, if, so if I'm in America and I'm, um, you know, signing petitions against Bolsonaro and cutting down the Amazon and I'm eating meat, that's pretty much like putting a, uh, a no oil, no blood for oil sticker on my Hummer. Right. Well, Howard, the, the argument that I'll hear people say is because I'll hear people who are upset about what's happening in the Amazon rainforest. And I'll just ask them, like, not, not confrontationally, but just ask them, like, so then why, why eat meat? And they'll go, oh, well, well, you know, I, I get American meat. My, my, mine comes from the United States. It's like, okay, guys, this is a global economy, right? There is supply and there is demand on a global level. And so if you are part of the demand, you are creating this, you know, need for further supply. And it doesn't matter whether you eat American meat or Brazilian meat or, you know, it could be from anywhere. Right. If you're eating the American meat, then someone else isn't getting the American meat. And so they're going to need the meat from Brazil. It's supply and demand and it's on a global <laughs> level. So, you know, it, it, so you, you can't have it both ways. And I, I just feel like, you know, where I get a little bit frustrated, Howard, is when we we do this sometimes as individuals and we do this as nations, as nation states, where we will point the finger at others, be like, you can't do that. All right. So like China right now, you know, we are pointing the finger at China. How dare you have that wet market? That's disgusting. Mm. Look at the things that we're doing. You know what I mean? Look at the things that we're doing with our animal agriculture. You tell me that's not disgusting. Who are we Mm -hmm. to be pointing our finger? It's ridiculous. So how how does um, American animal agriculture contribute to uh, threats to microbiome? To, to diversity. Well, but so let, let's let's zoom in on the individual human microbiome for a moment. Right. Okay. And let's let's um, ignore this broader conversation about the environment and the effect on you know our soil and health and things of that variety. Let's just talk about what actually happens in your gut when you eat meat. There's a study that was done. It published in 2014. Groundbreaking study. It was in the journal Nature, which is the top journal in the world. Um, by Lawrence David and Peter Turnbaugh. And basically what they did is, you have to understand, we accept that our diet changes our microbiome now, okay? But the reason why we accept that is because of this this study that I'm about to tell you about. In 2014, this was not accepted knowledge yet. And what they did is they basically took people and they put them on polar opposite extreme diets, Five days of a 100% whole food, plant-based, no oil diet. Okay. Then they would flip them over to the other side. Five days of 100% animal products, meat, dairy, eggs, no veggies at all, none. And so they would do five days of each and they, and they checked their microbiome every single day to see what happened. All right. So number one, regardless of which diet you were on, your microbiome changed in less than 24 hours. In one day of changing your diet, you can alter your microbiome. The plant-based diet saw basically like, as I said before, your dietary choices will define what your microbiome looks like. So the plant-based diet saw the enrichment of microbes that thrive on fiber. These are anti-inflammatory microbes. The reason why they're anti-inflammatory is because what they do is they consume the fiber 
and release short-chain fatty acids, which I was telling you about before with the, the immune system in the lungs. These are anti-inflammatory. The flip side was the animal product diet, okay? Remember, this is five days. We're not talking about five years. We're talking about five days. And what they saw was the emergence of specific types of bacteria that thrive in the setting of bile. Bile, which is a digestive juice produced by your liver, gets pumped out when you eat high-fat foods because it helps you to absorb fat. But bile, which comes from within your own body, bile alters the microbiome, and it will kill certain bacteria. The microbes that emerged on this animal product diet were what we call bilophilic. They thrive in this environment with bile. Mm -hmm. These are inflammatory microbes. Um, an example of one is Biophila wadsworthia. Biophila wadsworthia was popping off the charts in this study and the animal product diet. And Biophila wadsworthia has been clearly associated with inflammatory bowel disease. So in less than five days, you are already weighing the framework for inflammatory bowel disease. They also saw that the bacteria that were emerging are ones that take bile and produce secondary bile salts. You guys, Secondary bile salts are, are what is associated with the development of colorectal cancer. They are directly implicated in the pathogenesis, the development of colorectal cancer. So you are getting risk for inflammatory bowel disease. You are getting risk for, for ulcer, um, for colon cancer all in less than five days. And then the last part, which was quite fascinating is that they noticed that the microbes in the gut, when they were on the animal-based diet, developed antibiotic resistance. And they're like, gosh, what's the deal with that? They're not, we're not, we haven't given them any antibiotics. Why are they getting antibiotic resistance? Because 80%, guys, 80% of the antibiotics in the United States are fed to animals or given to animals as a part of animal agriculture. It's a practice that's illegal in Europe, but we allow it in the United States. And we are breeding antibiotic resistance by casually using these antibiotics in our livestock. And in this study, what they showed is when you eat that meat, it affects your gut and can give you antibiotic resistance. Meaning that when you then come across one of the the bugs that's that's, that's antibiotic resistant, that it will get you sick and there's, and we don't have any more treatments for you. Right. Exactly. We've had like a 50 or 70 year history of, um, like a, a arms race against bacteria, right? With stronger and stronger antibiotics. And now we, we've run out. That's right. So the drug, so the drug development pipeline for antibiotics has dried up substantially. You know, in my, um, career over the last 20 years, there have been very few new antibiotics that have been developed. They've basically run out. And um, if you go back 100 years ago, the top causes of death were all infections. All right, that's what, that's what humans traditionally died of. And the life expectancy at that time was about 50 years of age, if you go back a little more than 100 years ago. And it was the development of penicillin that really started to transform things where we could keep people alive to what we do now, which is 80 years on average. And so we may, we may in the future, if we don't handle ourselves properly, be returning to a time where infections are the top cause. We 
created an environment where we really started to protect ourselves from infections using antibiotics. And now it's the overutilization of antibiotics that is breeding antibiotic resistance. And the main place where we are breeding antibiotic resistance is in these, you know, uh, basically livestock farms where they're administering the antibiotic. And you know what? You probably know this, Howard, but for the people at home who, who aren't familiar with why they're given the antibiotics, they're not given it for infections, guys. That's not what they're doing. Mm. They're given the, the antibiotic because the industry, the livestock industry at this point is so ratcheted down on trying to make as much money as humanly possible. You cut whatever corner you can if it means that you can create more pounds of meat at lower cost. And so what they do is they give the antibiotic and the antibiotic actually leads to the cow gaining 15% more weight off the same amount of food. And I, and the reason why is because they're destroying the microbiome of the cow. I mean, it's the same is true in humans. If you destroy the microbiome of a human, they gain weight. Yeah, I wanted to get into that a little bit. I want to leave, I want to leave enough time to actually talk about like all the positive things in the book, but I do want to get into this where you said like two people can be, they, they've had studies where they've had isocaloric feeding and one group gains a lot more weight than the other because of the microbiome. They have studies with isocaloric feeding where they, they give, so in humans, they have studies of isocaloric feeding where they give, um, you know, different meals, but they are calorically the same. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for example, there's one that's a bean study, all right, where they looked at the effect of beans and what they saw, isocaloric, they're feeding the same number of calories to people and the, the group that gets the beans loses more weight than the other group, even though they're eating the same number of calories. And the reason that that happens, we believe, is due to the effect on the microbiome. You know, the same is true. Another example of this with the beans. So, you know, what we're talking about is the metabolic effects of our microbiome. You know, there's another thing that's called the second meal effect. Mm -hmm. And the second meal effect is where if you give a person beans at lunch, you will actually improve their blood sugar control at dinner, like the next meal. And the reason why is because of the effect on the gut microbiome. The beans have a positive anti-inflammatory effect on the gut microbiome. So, you know, when it comes to um, our weight, the, the concept is like this. I view it as it is like we are swimming with a current. All right. The person who can eat whatever they want and get away with it, is the person who's swimming with the current at their back and it's pushing them and it just looks like they're like a speed racer, whether they're a good swimmer or not. Okay. And the person who struggles and fights, and we all know these people, and I'm sure some of these people are listening right now. The person who struggles and fights and tries to change their diet and does everything within their power to try to lose weight and they still can't do it. That's like a person who's swimming against the current and you're just hacking away, trying to swim and keep up and you still can't move and you're getting exhausted in the process. And the reason that this happens, that current, the current is driven by the microbiome. Your gut microbiome affects how you react to your food and it will affect your weight balance. Mm. But the good news is, as we talked about in the very beginning, Howard, you have the ability to change your microbiome. Right. So let's, let's get to that. Cause what, one, like the other thing that really struck me about this book and what's going to change, um, my practice 
is, so you talk about, like, you can eat ad libitum. You can eat as much as you want. You don't have to restrict. And you will, you know, lose weight if you need to get to an ideal weight, the, eating the fiber-fueled way. Now, I've heard other doctors talk about this, like, you know, Dr. McDougall talks about it. And I've heard a lot of, especially women, but men as well, say, that's not true. I ate whole food plant-based and I didn't lose the weight or when I, when I ate ad libitum and I had to restrict. So there's a difference between whole food plant-based and what you're talking about. So what, I, what I'm talking about is I'm talking about whole food, plant-based, no oil. Okay. Mm -hmm. And if you eat that way, and you eat in abundance and in but that's diversity. the thing, the diversity, because a lot of people who eat right. whole food plant based, I could have the same meal. And, you know, you talked about like if all you ate was kale, like people think, oh, right. kale is a thousand on the Andy score. So kale is better than everything else. I think people are missing the importance of the diversity. I agree with you. And, I, you know, I actually go so far as to say in my book that I think diversity is far more important than fixation on superfoods. You know, you can say, oh, I need more kale, I need more kale. But the, the kale by itself is not gonna be as good as if you had five different types of foods, even if no one considers them individually to be that great. Right, and I think you're also saying that diversity is more important than a fixation on 100% vegan. Well, I, so diversity in the study, to be fair, Okay, they looked at this in the American Gut Project study. So at the end of the day, as I've said, it's not my opinion, it's what the science says. In the American Gut Project study, the diversity of plants in your diet was a far stronger predictor of the health of your gut microbiome than whether or not you self-identified as being vegan. And the reason why is because at the end of the day, you can be vegan and eat a restricted diet and that's not good for your gut. And we see this. I mean, we, Howard, we see this in people who are like these Instagram influencers and they eat like a fruit only diet or a raw only diet. And then they, they have gut health issues and they quit veganism saying that veganism is the problem. No, the problem is not veganism. The problem is that you weren't eating a healthy diet. That was not a healthy form right. of veganism. See, what I, what I had thought until yesterday was, okay, so, you know, I said, well, you don't, you don't have to be a healthy vegan, right? You could be a junk food vegan. And so, like, we know, right. we don't want to be a junk food vegan. What I learned from you is you can be an unhealthy whole food plant-based eater. If you... You could be if you ate the same food all which, the time. Which, which so yeah. many of us do. Right. And, well, and this is where, for me, what was a game changer for me, Howard, is implementing this simple idea, as we talked about from the very beginning of the show, this is the golden rule. It's, it's one rule and it's super simple, diversity of plants. So let me give you an example of how this plays out in my house. We're a normal family. Sometimes we have spaghetti and tomato sauce, all right? So we will get a organic whole wheat uh, penne and we'll get our tomato sauce. And that's two plants. That's not plant-based diversity, right? But it's not hard to throw garlic, onions, mushrooms, zucchini, maybe some greens, maybe some spinach or some kale. Throw that in your sauce and just let it simmer for 45 minutes. The house smells amazing. Your kids are salivating. They can't wait. And then when you serve it, serve it with some basil, some fresh parsley. And you just went from two up to like nine different plants 
and it tastes delicious. Everyone in the family is happy. And guess who's the happiest? Your gut microbes. Because <laughs> you're feeding them. Right. And so you have a, um, I mean, the, the second half of the book really is the food plan. And so one, one of the things that I really love about it, and this, this is the biggest change in my practice in coaching people, is I just felt like if you're constipated, then what you need to do is switch to a immediately to a plant-based diet and it will take care, like jump all in. Like behaviorally, I didn't believe that, like because people need time. And but if, you know, if behavior was an issue, if you could just feed them, if you could put them somewhere and feed them, the ideal would be immediately switch to a whole food plant-based diet because that will give you the biggest bang for your buck and change you quickly. And you convinced me that that's not a good idea. Yeah, well, I, in my practice, I have seen, um, so of course, I'm a gastroenterologist, right? So I'm seeing the people who are coming in with digestive issues and virtually 100% of people who walk through the doors of my practice have dysbiosis. And when a person is constipated and you put them on a high fiber diet, mm. they're just not able to do it. And they're going to be miserable. And that's the person who comes back and says, I tried your diet, it failed, now I'm trying something else. And you lost them. You missed your window of opportunity to convince them that a whole food plant-based diet is actually the right path to optimal gut health. You know, people only have so much patience for this kind of stuff. So for me, when a person is constipated, this is actually one of the most important points, you know, for, for people who are considering a whole food plant-based diet. If you have constipation, we need to deal with that. We need to deal with that. We need to get you into a rhythm and get you pooping. Mm -hmm. And then once we get you pooping and you're in that rhythm, now we can start to introduce fiber slow and low is the tempo and we can ramp it up over time. Right. Right. And there was a, there was a bunch of foods that, um, I have added to my diet since yesterday. So full, full disclosure, um, I was having a really hard time the last couple of weeks, just stuff in my life and you know, the, the general pandemic depression and misery. And I was overeating on crap. You know, I'd come back from South Africa a little bit sick, maybe COVID, I don't know. Um, but I wasn't running. I was lethargic. I was miserable as, you know, as you write in the book, my gut microbiome was jet lagged. Um, and so I was eating way too much crap. And so I decided, mm -hmm. I, like, I stepped on the scale and I was like 10 pounds over the weight when I'd left. And I'm like, that's it. I'm not. And so I fasted for 36 hours. And then I said, I'm going to go raw for a couple of weeks. And I was raw for one day. And then I read the book and I'm like, well, maybe that's not the best idea. Uh, but I've since, like, we have some kimchi. Um, I put a, I, I found a recipe for sourdough to, to do the starter. Talk a little bit about, nice. about some of your, you know, not to, not to say that these are superfoods, but pretty, you know, easy, fun, delicious things to add that most people are neglecting. Well, I, so I have an entire chapter about fermented foods, which I'm a huge believer in. Um, and when I say fermented foods, I'm really talking about fermenting your plants. So I love making like a good sauerkraut or a good kimchi, um, a surprising one or radishes. They're so easy to do. Mm. They're so easy to do. And the higher the fiber content of the food, mm. the better it is when you ferment it. So a radish comes out crunchy, but it loses a lot of the spice that you have before you ferment it. And so they're delicious. So I'll often do them with like garlic, black peppers, like black peppercorns and um, dill to make almost like a pickle flavor. Mm. And um, 
So, so anyway, I, I love fermented foods. I think they're a nice addition to a healthy diet. Um, I also am a big fan of broccoli sprouts. If people aren't doing broccoli sprouts, you should be. They're so easy to grow in your own home. It takes five days. It is so easy to do, and it's kind of fun. And if you have kids, your kids will be super into it too. So it's one thing that I enjoy. That was the saddest part because I fa- I had done that like in 2015, and I and I bought this big bag from Johnny Selected Seeds, and I found the bag, and it's still half full, and they're all dead. So oh, like 20, 20, really I got I got I got to reorder. Um, yeah, yeah, because uh, I mean, you write about the link between the microbiome and cancer. Right. And the sulforaphanes and, and the broccoli sprouts and, and all uh, all cruciferous, but specifically broccoli sprouts is like seems to be a really potent cancer fighter. Yeah. So, the you know, we all know we know that these cruciferous vegetables, you know, I, I'll rattle them off real quick, like broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts um, and kale and arugula. These cruciferous vegetables we know contain um, cancer fighting phytochemicals called glucosinolates. And the glucosinolates need to be activated to to create um, their isothiocyanates, which is the active form. Well, guess what? Your gut microbes do the activation. Mm. Your gut microbes are capable of doing the activation. And so, um, so there's this one isothiocyanate. It is a cancer crusher, probably the most powerful cancer-fighting thing I've come across in all nutrition, called sulforaphane. And you'll find it in broccoli. You'll find it as a result of consuming these um, cruciferous vegetables. But these broccoli sprouts have a hundred times, up to a hundred times more sulforaphane than adult mature broccoli, which I find to be fascinating. So we, in our house, we love broccoli sprouts. They are consumed literally on a daily basis. Um, we will put them into a smoothie that is enjoyed by the entire family in the morning. And I also love to throw them into soup or put them on top of a salad. And, you know, they're bitter. Um, I've learned to embrace the bitter. Mm. But if you put them in a smoothie or if you put them in uh, in a soup, that really dulls the bitterness quite a bit. Nice. So so I have to admit, also, there are a couple of foods that I have basically felt a little bit guilty about. Like there's a hierarchy of, like, purity, right? Like, you know, and sort of. I, in my mind, I know this is not necessarily true, but in my mind, like raw vegan was the ultimate. Like, like we're we're all like it's a religion, and we're all trying to be holier. And right. you know, and I see this at like vegan gatherings where the doctors will I, like not even being consciously aware of it will will sort of like try to be more strict than the next one. And so, like I said, I went raw until I read. The book, and I'm like, oh, I, I need some, you know, we have a beautiful thing of beans and brown rice that my wife made, but I wasn't going to have it. And she makes her own tofu, and there was one of those, like, oh, it'd be great, but I'm not going to have it because raw is better. But raw, raw isn't right. better, is it? It's, it, it is, um, it's different, and there's not necessarily superiority. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, take, uh, let's take collards, for example. Okay. Okay. You could eat the collards raw, or you could steam or saute the collards. The, there was a study done by a guy, Peter Turnbaugh. I mentioned his name a little bit earlier. Um, Peter Turnbaugh did a study that I actually added. One of the last things that I added into my book was this study, because it came out in the fall of 2019. And uh, it basically what he showed is when you cook the food, you change the fiber. Mm. And that results in a difference 
in the microbiome. Every unique type of fiber will feed unique types of microbes. And so when you have collards and you steam or you cook them, you are transforming the fiber. So actually the superior idea, the superior idea is rather than saying one is better than the other, the superior idea is to have a little bit of both because mm. then you're getting more diversity of plants in your Beautiful. diet. Beautiful. And the other thing that I've been sort of guilty about whenever I eat it is wheat. And like you, you talk a lot about wheat, gluten sensitivity, celiac. Could you give us the, the, the elevator pitch on, on wheat and why I should not be scared of whole wheat bread? We've been, we've been uh, hyperbolic in our response to the gluten fear. I mean, it really is a gluten fear. You know, we've been told that this is just destroying our body, right? I'm not sitting here and telling you that we should have more gluten and, and maximize the gluten in our diet. But there's, there's concerns. We have studies that show, Howard, that when people go gluten-free and they don't need to, they increase their risk of heart disease. That is the number one killer in the United States. The last thing that we need is to be increasing our risk of the number one threat to our life hmm. in the United States. That doesn't make any sense. And the reason why it's a mistake is that you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Wheat contains healthy compounds that are prebiotic that feed the microbes in our gut. And when we get rid of the wheat, we are getting rid of the number one source of whole grains. And if you don't replace that, your gut suffers as a result of that. So in my book, I go into great detail. And, you know, let me just comment real quick since we're talking about it. You know, it's a this is a complex topic. Mm. Gluten is a complex topic. And when I sat down to write this part of the book, Howard, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that. I, I literally took several days and I just read without, without, without writing. I just read and I just sat there because at the end of the day, what I want is I want the highest quality science that I can deliver to you. This is not about proving an agenda. This is not about choosing the path a priori and then finding the studies to fulfill that path. This is the way science is meant to be. I'm a believer in, in real science. Mm -hmm. And the way that science is meant to be is check your bias. At yeah. The and door. can I interrupt you for a second to just ask you to, to tell us your, your bona fides as a scientist? Cause you're not like people are like, Oh, you're a doctor. You're a gastroenterologist. You probably took like one stats course, you know, in, in the late nineties. Um, you weren't a clinician until you had been a researcher for like decades, right? So the, the, the story goes like this. I graduated. I'll just, I'll just walk you through. Here's the story. I graduated med school in 2006 at Georgetown. I was at Northwestern and at Northwestern, I won, I won the highest award in my residency. I was the intern of the year. They call it the Rombach award. When that happened, it triggered a series of doors opening in front of me. One of the doors is they asked me to be the chief medical resident. The other thing that they did is they offered to pay for me to get a master's degree in clinical investigation. So someone comes to you and says, we will pay for you to get a degree from Northwestern University, one of the top universities in the United States. What do you say? You go, heck uh -huh. yeah, I'm doing it. So I signed up and I did night classes and I'm not exaggerating. I would be on call in the ICU and I would, I would go to my class and sometimes my pager would go off and I'd have to run back to the ICU to take care of a patient. <laughs> All right. So, and I, I did that for two years. I did that during my third year residency and during my chief residency. Then at that point, I was convinced that I was going to be a clinical researcher. 
So I went to the University of North Carolina and I was on a grant from the NIH and I was studying at the Gillings School of Global Public Health, which is basically if you look at the U.S. News and World Report, if you believe in that kind of thing and you look at schools of public health every single year, you will always see the same top three. It's always the same top three. It's always UNC, Harvard and Hopkins. Those are the top three and they'll just rotate which is which. So I was at UNC and I basically was studying as an epidemiologist. So, you know, basically I, I took a period of time for 18 months where I didn't take call. I barely took care of patients and I was a full-time clinical researcher. I was studying at the school of public health. I was working with my mentor. I was publishing papers. That's what I did. And um, so I finished all my education in 2014. I graduated and, and the short of it is this: it was not an easy choice. I disappointed a lot of people who mentored me, but I loved in academia. You can't have it both ways. Mm. You can't be a researcher and a clinician. You have to choose. And so for me, I loved taking care of patients too much Mm. to give it up. And so I decided to follow that. And you've you've also, you know, embodied the idea of diversity, right? You have a clinical research, you have a research background and a clinical background. And I'm sure you've learned things from both that you couldn't have learned from either by themselves. Well, the research background, I feel, empowers me where when I'm writing this book, you know, I reviewed over a thousand studies to write this book. And um, there are more than 600 references, which, by the way, mm-hmm. anyone who wants my references, you can have them right now for completely for free. Go to plant, theplantfedgut.com. And you don't have to buy the book. Just you go ahead and download the references, theplantfedgut.com. So um, I, I feel like my research background helped me because I, it allowed me to become the interpreter. And when it comes to complex topics like gluten, mm-hmm. I, turn, I became the interpreter. I'm reading this. There's a high level of complexity and I'm coming out and I'm going to break it down and I'm going to show you what's actually going on. So. Right. So anyway, back to I what we were on. You got to go, huh? OK, um, I have so many more questions and they will have to wait or maybe rip ask them and I'll go I'll go find out there. But tell us a little bit more about like the book. Um, I guess I'm going to be um, releasing this on the, the 12th, right? The day that your book comes out. Well, I'll tell you what, Howard, you, you just let me know when you want to record and do more questions. Um, I'm more than happy to do it. If your community or we could do it live with your community, if you ever want to do that, oh, whatever yeah. you want to do, you just hell know. yeah, well, that'd be fun. If you want to do it, if you want to do it next week, when you at like the week of the um, that you release the podcast, I'm happy to do that. And we could do live Q&A with your community. Um, Fiber Fueled, guys, is is now it's out on May 12th, which it sounds like is the day that this podcast is out. That's the name of the book. Fiber Fueled is available mm. through all the major book retailers, you know, Amazon, Barnes. Well, hold it up for the people watching. Yeah. My 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 personal favorite is so uh, you can buy it wherever you prefer. I am I am grateful no matter where you buy it from. But the one thing I will say is because it's COVID-19, I love it when people buy it from their local bookstore. Nice. Because we should keep them, you know, if you're going to buy a book, buy it from the local guy. Amazon is richer than they've ever been right now. Your local bookstore is on the verge of going out of business, and someday you're going to want to mosey on into that bookstore and have a cup of coffee and read a book, and you got to support them if you want that to be the case. Yeah, and you want your local bookstore owner and employees to be able to buy from you too. Exactly. Right. goes both ways. Beautiful. I love that. 
So, um, well, Bolsowitz, thank you so much. As I said, like this is the this is this book has changed how I approach helping people get healthy. I think it's going to be the book that people are going to give to other people. I mean, we've had wonderful um, plant based science books for two decades now, and yours is based on such new, exciting science that it kind of explains things that other books kind of glossed over because that we just didn't know. So it's a it's a triumph. It is such a beautiful addition to, to the genre. and It's going to help a lot of people. So thank you so much for the work you put in and for taking the time today. It's my pleasure, Howard. It's my pleasure, man. I appreciate you saying all that. It means a lot. And I hope people enjoy the book. And when you read the book, reach out to me and let me know what you think, because I love hearing from people. Awesome. Also, I just want to say it's a hilarious book. Like, like it's just full of dad jokes. It's so it's so sweet. <laughs> it's sweet and funny nice. and a great read. And everyone should just get it. All right. Have you ordered your copy yet? I hope so. I hope this goes to number one on Amazon. I hope it takes the world by storm. And again, big thanks to Dr. B for the incredible amount of work he's done uh, in the last two years to to put this baby out into the world. I'm so honored that I was one of the first podcasts to uh, to share his work and that I'm one of a number, including some very, very big and important one. So uh, here's here's hoping this message goes more viral than the virus. All right. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast and you'd like to support the mission of the show, the easiest way to do that is to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Just takes a few minutes and doesn't cost anything. I want to read you um, a, a couple of reviews that I've gotten recently. So Sectuper. Um, or PR from the United Kingdom writes wrong, stupid and dangerous gives me one star. And the uh, comment is yet another sarcopenic vegan promoting malnutrition and starvation. Avoid. Thank you. Um, in contrast, Mr. H.L. Bob from the UK on March 29th writes intelligent and compassionate. This is such a thought provoking podcast, never fails to deliver edifying ideas and food for the soul. Just listening to Howard, who cares enough to communicate with this much passion and honesty, makes me feel that it is worth doing the responsible plant based thing for myself, my loved ones and the planet. Well, that hits me in a very nice space. Thank you very much, Mr. H.L. Bob. Uh, Queen of Salads writes, uh, solid, fast paced and well researched interviews. Just list, finished listening to the straight talk on COVID-19 for the second time through. So that was with uh, my buddy, Dr. Michael Rothberg of Cleveland Clinic. Probably the most rational information I've heard on this topic. I'm a longtime listener of this podcast and enjoy the guests almost as much as your thoughtful and insightful interviewing skills. Well done. Please keep them coming. You bet, Queen of Salads. And from yesterday, an extraordinary podcast says RGB, RGB 11 from the United States. I can't recommend this podcast highly enough. The guests on the show are extraordinary and the topics could not be of more importance and urgency. If you have any interest in living a more just, healthy, compassionate and sustainable life, give this a listen. Thank you all, especially the one who wrote about the sarcopenic vegan promoting malnutrition and starvation. That made my day. And as I mentioned before, another way to support the show is to support me financially so that I can keep doing it. These are uh, challenging times for a lot of us. And so I'm, uh, I'm ramping up requests for tips. Um, not easy to do 
for me, but the work that I do is important. And you, as you may know, every single episode of the Plant Yourself podcast is available for free for the world. A lot of my articles are available for free. Um, the book uh, Sick to Fit that Josh Lajani and I wrote is available for free as an Amazon Kindle download. And the um, the product that I created recently, the um, guided relaxation exercises for the homebound and stressed out is also available uh, for free if you if you wish. It's a donation based system, including zero. So if you like that and you and the fact that there's this podcast does not take any advertising that you get, uh, you know, my, as, as clean an editorial objectivity as I can present, given all my opinions and biases. But at least you know that I'm not making decisions based on um, financial gain under the table somehow, somewhere. So if all that matters to you and you would like to help out again, it's plantyourself.com slash gift. All right. So in garden news, gosh, I'm working hard to get this one patch of crabgrass cleared using a, a BCS two wheel tractor with the plow. Um, using a mattock, using my my hands, taking a really long time, but um, hopefully with by by next weekend there will be something growing in there. I had this beautiful plot of buckwheat, but it got a little bit too cold. It went down to the low thirties, above freezing, but still too cold for the buckwheat um, sprouts, and they all kind of withered and died. That's okay, though. I'm going to uh, hoe them in and plant something else, and uh, they will have fixed some nitrogen and, and enriched the soil a little bit. It's weird, the, the weather we've been having lately. This morning, it was in the 30s, uh, and we had you know this frost warning from the middle of May in North Carolina, a little bit unheard of. In running news, um, I've been doing six milers. I, I took the weekend off and actually yesterday I stayed in bed for a lot of the day. I just didn't feel well. I don't know if I've had COVID-19 and I keep having these sort of, you know, rises and falls repercussions. Uh, I am, you know, more tired than I've been in a long time. So I suspect that might be a thing. So good, good thing that doesn't spread via podcasts. Um, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use Sabali Don, the Dance of Peace. Check out Will Ridenauer's music at willridenauer.com. Also want to make a big thanks to my daughter, Yael Zivan, who has become the artist for Plant Yourself. So far, um, the work she's done has been um, in just making better graphics for each podcast. So, you know, photos of the guests and their books. And when it's just me talking, this nice photo of me that she took with my new pandemic goatee and uh, and the words, I think it's, it's getting easier for people you know, on Instagram and LinkedIn to actually see what the podcast is about rather than just reading my text. So thanks, y'all, for all that work as well. Oh, I want to mention that uh, we're coming out with a new podcast, Kevin Davis and I, who are the uh, the co-leaders of the Wellstart Coach Training Academy, um, are putting together the Health Coaches podcast. Um, more on that as we get ready to launch. Um, apparently, it's very important when you launch that you get a whole bunch of people downloading all at once so that you can start to uh, make some noise on Apple Podcasts and the other services. So I'll I'll let you know if you're if you are a health coach or interested in becoming one, or if you do health coaching as a doctor or a dietitian or some other health professional. I think this will be of interest to you as well. Where was I? I was I was doing thanks. 
Okay, here we go. Here are the uh, the patrons of Plant Yourself, for whom I love to thank. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Morrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Ramsey Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Tom Franzik, Jeanette Bellum, Benham. Gila Lacert, David Donahue, Blair Cyborg, Dorona Visa of Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z of Eva Lell, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lindemann, Rajwa Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Melton Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the Inscrutable, Harry R. Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Dean Norton, Bonnie Lynch of Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Bruno O'Connell, Shannon Hurstman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzan Wakani Hain, Larry Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor. Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, The Rothschild, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divot, Joshua Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, and Patan McCorney, Stephen Leland, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Carson, Dean Bishop, Bill Burrell, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Moulton, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon. Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg Vermama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael K. Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Zadarowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Laura Vaught of Edible Musings, Heron Hasty, Sean Owens, and Sagar Naik for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this episode. As always, Be well, my friends.